Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, everyone. Today's episode is with Angela Alberto. Angela is a death midwife, a death educator, and early childhood educator. She believes children are able to handle talking about death. She offers one-on-one consultations for parents, teachers, and educators, death midwife services, and an educational presentation called How to Talk to Kids About Death. Today's podcast episode will be exactly that, How to Talk to Kids About Death. Here we go. Just a little disclaimer before we start this episode. This podcast does not provide medical advice. The information on this podcast is for informational purposes only. No material on this site is intended to be a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Our first sponsor today is Navy Hair Care. I have been working with Navy Hair Care since they launched back in 2018. At that time, I was about a year postpartum with our third child, and my hair was experiencing some trouble after some significant postpartum hair loss. Navy really helped to strengthen my hair, and I noticed a big difference about one to two months after using it regularly. With biotin, vitamins, and rosemary oil, this shampoo and conditioner combo has been part of my daily routine for years now. I also use the charcoal mask every one to two weeks to help revitalize my hair. It helps to dry out toxins, heavy metals, and impurities, which we have plenty of since we have well water. This mask will leave your hair feeling incredibly soft and lightweight. You can use the code Lindsay, L-Y-N-Z-Y, for 30% off your order, and I will leave the links to the products I mentioned within the show notes. Today's show is also sponsored by Sarah Belly. Sarah Belly was founded by neurosurgeon Teresa Persner. You can hear all about the story that inspired the brand within the episode we recorded together about six months ago. After becoming a neurosurgeon, Teresa went back to school to earn her PhD in developmental neurobiology at Stanford. After having her three children, she was having a hard time finding baby food that focused on the proper nutrients needed for the developing brain. And thus, Cerebelli was born. Did you know that 80% of a baby's brain is fully developed by the age of three? Cerebelli is the only brand of organic purees that provide 16 key brain-supporting nutrients. Let your baby explore veggie-first, clean-label project certified flavors with no added sugar and spoonfuls of nutrients with Cerebelli. Parenting is an art. Cerebelli is science. And you know how much I love science. My kids also enjoy their smart bars, which are great for a quick, nutrient-packed snack for on-the-go. Today's listeners can get up to 35% off your first order of Sarah Belly with code Lindsay20, that's L Y N Z Y 20, 
plus an additional 15% off when you subscribe and save. Hello, Angela. Excited to have you on the show tonight. How are you? Hi. Uh, I was about to say welcome. <laughs> welcome. <laughs> welcome to my living room. Um, yeah. I'm so happy to be here. So we were chatting very briefly before we started here, and I was telling you how I ended up finding you, which was through some rabbit hole when I was still on Instagram. And I had no idea that a death doula or death midwife was even something that was available. And I just think it's such an awesome tool that we can use, especially as providers and such to kind of suggest people like you. So why don't we just dive in a little bit into your story, how you decided to do this, how you even heard about it, and then what exactly it is, what your typical day looks like, stuff like that. Sure. So I guess I'll give my spiel first about what a death midwife is. There's many of us. We go by different titles. I choose have chosen death midwife for myself. There's death workers, death companion, death doulas, end of life planner. There's many terms because it's all individualized and it's non-medical care for somebody who is at the end of life. Now, that's the most basic definition because we also do advanced care planning We are educators. We work with different hospices. I myself, my specialty is that I work with kids and educators and parents on how to talk to kids about death. Um, So a lot of us also believe in the idea that, you know, death work is not just when you get a terminal diagnosis and then you get a death midwife. Like you could work with one now if you want to get your will and advance directive together, which we support fully because, you know... If we're jumping right in, we could die at any time. Having these things set and having these things set up is like one really beautiful way to show like love to your family so that they don't have to do it for you in a really at a really hard time. So that's the that's the basic outline. We uh, for for this purpose, I'm going to say death midwives because that's how I identify, but I just want it to be known. Like I said, not everybody identifies like that, but we are all under the same umbrella of advanced care planning. And then let's say somebody is on hospice, then we move into the, you know, working with the family, working with the client themselves, sitting vigil when the time of death is near so the caregivers can get some rest. There's a whole spectrum of what we do. It's really cool. So now, and I was doing some brief research before starting the episode, but when did, when did kind of the, the idea of a, a death doula, death midwife, you know, all these terms, when did that idea kind of come to fruition? I kind of read in some places that it was like the early 2000s, but do you know? Well, if you're asking me, we have been for thousands of years. We just have now, as a modern society, put a name to it, which is death doula, death midwife, right? But we have been tending to our dead and taking care of those who are sick and dying for as long as we've been on this planet. It is not a new thing, right? Let's say there's there's somebody who has been lives in a small village or a small neighborhood, and they are the ones who take care of the elderly and check in on them. That's being a death midwife. Let's say some of these people in this neighborhood or this village are ill and this person steps forward to care for them. 
that is also taking on the role of what we do. So in my mind, it has very ancient roots to what it means to be a human. But yes, it it has come about, there's this new wave, if you will, I'd say that probably happened in, yeah, the 2000s. I mean, just in the short two or three years that I've been in this community, there's been like, like, people are coming in droves. They're just wanting to be a part of this work, which is beautiful because it's a sacred, beautiful thing, as is what you do, which is like caring for people as well. Mm -hmm. So what made you want to do this? Like, was there a day you woke up and you were like, this is what I feel like doing? Or was there a specific, you know, event that happened that made you want to specialize in this? So I'm a very spiritual person. And I believe that our well and bright ancestors are with us. And about four years ago, I started doing ancestor work, which is guided meditations and kind of like, it's like a balance between like guided meditations and then also like ancestry.com where I'm like researching my, my lineage. And at this time I kept hearing like death doula, you know, and like seeing an article in the paper or like, in a guided meditation, the ancestors would, you know, say like death work. And I'm like, what, what, what is this? Like, what is this thing? Death work. And then I began to do more research, if you will. And lo and behold, it's this whole thing that has taken rise and is becoming more of a, I don't want to use the word popular, becoming more known. So explain a little bit. I know you said you work sometimes with hospice care and things like that, but like, what is a typical week look like for you? Like, will families kind of hire you specifically just for their loved one? Do you do mostly care with those that are in hospice? Like, what is what does your work typically look like, yours personally? Sure. I want to attach one more quote or one more thought to the idea of how I became a death midwife. What solidified this work for me was when my dog, who I'd had for 16 years, was being put down. And it all kind of clicked into place that in the face of death, as I'm watching my sweet, beloved dog be put down, like I, I was able to hold this space. And when I thought about my life and I thought about all the ways in which I would show up for my family or friends or loved ones, like I was the person that didn't shy away when a death had occurred. There was a lot of death in my life as a child through my grandparents dying when I was very young and my aunt and my uncle, like all these, these deaths. Right. And I never felt afraid of it. It just felt like something that I knew happened to humans, to us. So that kind of solidified it all. It all came together and was like, Oh, this is something I'm definitely meant to do. And I feel called to do be it the ancestors and or actual life experiences that brought me to death work. Awesome. So interesting. Okay. So tell us a little bit about like your typical work right now. Sure. Well, I'm an honest person, so I will be very frank when I say this. And right now, being a death midwife is not a full-time gig. It is something I do 24-7 in the idea that looking at my own mortality and my own death has change the way I view the world. I feel less afraid of certain things and not as many worries because I realize that like we're only only here for like a brief moment. 
so in regards to the question that you're asking, (laughs) like this is the thing, like I can't, you know, like it's not the kind of job and it's, it's not even a job. It's a lifestyle. It's how you view things. Like taking the time to look at death is, can be a really beautiful freeing experience, which is kind of what you're asked to do when you first start out on this work. Because in the classes that I've taken and the people I've studied with, I studied with Elua Arthur going with Grace and Narendra Bazin, Nine Keys Death Death Apprentice. You're asked to hold this space all the time. And, you know, the logistics of it, like the day-to-day, I'm constantly thinking about, like, let's say for my parents, like, okay, what's the next step in my parents? Like, what do they need to do? They need to fill out, they have their will. Now we have to talk about advanced directives. How do I talk about advanced directives with, with them? Let's see. So like trying to plan like that aspect, like my own personal life within death work. And then there's clients. I don't have five clients a month. I don't think I could do that emotionally. The clients I have had one, for example, one recent one was, it was a two week experience. They were on hospice for that long. And then it was over. There's another client that I'm working with who we don't know when their end, their end is coming, you know, you never know, but I am there to be checking in, you know, let's say every other week. Hey, how's it going? How are things, etc. So it's not for me in my experience, it's not super consistent work because it's just hasn't happened that way. But what it looks like is individualized, right? Like where, Where's the client's headspace when you first meet them? How do you greet them? Where, have they accepted their death? Because I'm not there to be like, well, you're on hospice, therefore you're going to die. Like, no, 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 no. I'm there to hold their space and meet them where they're at. And I wonder if you have a similar, is that similar with what you do? Like, do you have, like, as a doctor, as a PA, you're meeting your client, like, where they're at with what they're able to take in, you know, like, information. Oh, yeah, for sure. Yeah, yeah. You know, you'll kind of know it right away, depending on what the person is there for, you know, and you come in with a diagnosis. And then, you know, there are several different ways as to how that person accepts that diagnosis, you know, depending on what it is. Yeah, and it can obviously be really tough. You know, sometimes we we do give diagnoses that are, terminal diagnoses, you know, like we accidentally find cancer all the time in our patients. And it's not something that we typically manage at all, but we incidentally find them when we're working up a patient for something else. You know, that's not always a death sentence, obviously, but it might feel like one (laughs) when you receive it, when you come in with a headache and then someone says, oh, you have brain cancer or whatever. It can be really devastating and not everybody is in the space to, you know, accept that or hear that. Yeah. So I definitely completely get what you're saying. And and I'm sure that there are patients that, you know, could be placed on hospice or that are, you know, dying. And th- that window was very small. You know, they're not always people that saw it coming or knew it was coming and, you know, might not be very accepting as to their fate. And so I just think it's really beautiful to have somebody there that you said, like you said, can hold that space and just kind of like be with you and kind of guide you through to be in a position where you do feel, you know, more at peace. And, you know, this actually just reminds me of there was this recent podcast I listened to. Okay. It was on the Rich Roll podcast and it was this 
oh my gosh, it's this like ultra marathoner athlete. I don't know if you heard of this at all, but I'm going to actually bring it up because it's, it's really worth mentioning. Okay. So I listened to it, I think a week or two ago, and it was so eye-opening. Basically, Ritual Podcast, Tommy Rivs. So this episode is beautiful. Angela, I think you would really like it just because of what you do. So he is this insane athlete, ultra marathoner, was running crazy mileage per week. And he got sick and he actually thought it was COVID because this was like the beginning of COVID and he started having shortness of breath and what have you and ended up in the hospital. Like he just ignored it because, you know, he's like this professional athlete. He's super fit. He's like, oh, I just have, you know, a cold, whatever. Kept getting tested for COVID. It's negative, negative, negative. He just didn't believe it. He thought he still had it. And then ended up in the hospital, satting at like 70% on room here or something, which is like trash, <laughs> not good. And he got diagnosed with this really incredibly rare lung cancer. He was on ECMO for months, like ECMO. People don't come off ECMO. <laughs> they usually die. And so he talks about his his near-death experience while being on ECMO. And he, he talks about how he, when he came to he said that he had so many memories from the months where he was on ECMO of like things that happened in his life, but they weren't his they weren't in his present life. So he kept mixing memories together of like pre- yeah, of like past memories and then present memories and then these memories that were within this near death state that he was in. And so he couldn't like process through, like he didn't know what was, what actually happened and what didn't. Isn't that so crazy? So anyways, but the whole episode was about that. And he he just talks about how, you know, incredible, but fragile life is and how, how, he, you know, not to be scared of it. Like it was just incredibly powerful. So anyways, I just wanted to bring that up because it it really reminds me of like what you do and kind of this conversation, but I yeah, like really, percent. yeah. It I was mean, really, really good. It, that's so beautiful because that's it. Like, like, it, it's first off. Let me like. It, it's so interesting to 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 hit up against that question of like, well, what do you like? What does your day look like? You know, because people think it's this nine to five job, right? And it's not. Like, it's a complete. Like, being a death midwife is a complete complete okay so the story you just talked about like this man like went basically in my in the phrase that I would use he went to the underworld like he was like close to death and he came back and being a death midwife is similar to that where it's like you come so close to viewing death and being around death and thinking about death that it becomes this friend that you realize is not scary at all like what's underneath that cloak is just like another version of ourselves to some degree like there's no reason to fear it. And we're there as the death midwife to tell the client who's close to death or the client who's afraid to fill out their will and advance directive because there's that fear talking about death will kill you, but it's not true. (laughs) Like, just like talking about pregnant, you know, how to get pregnant won't, you won't get pregnant, you know, but there's this, like, we're there to remind you, like, you're doing this beautifully. Like you're doing this beautifully. Like we all know how, like our bodies instinctively know how to die. 
And there's nothing that we need to do other than like let go into it. And when you think about it, when you if you zoom out from the lens of death and you look at other aspects of our lives, that's with anything, like learning to let go and like flow with, you know, the hardships that life brings or the the joys, like when we just learn to flow and like be in it, there's less suffering for for us, for ourselves. Well, it's interesting that you say that because it kind of holds true to, you know, the woman who is pregnant and giving birth. Literally those same thoughts could be applied because absolutely. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Because with bearing four children, I can absolutely tell you the second your body knows how to bear a child. You could bear a child without even being conscious. Like your body will do it on its own. And the problem half the time, most of the time, is that we're fighting against it so hard. So you're, you know, clenching everything. You're clenching your jaw, your your hands, your body, and you're literally fighting your body to do what it's already supposed to be doing, but you're fighting against it. So it's actually making it much harder and the suffering is obviously much more. And so those that are able to relax more and just let it happen, typically, you know, have these beautiful births and you'll hear, you know, these, these wonderful stories. And I only had that with one of mine. <laughs> All the other ones were like, you know, you know, me clenching and, and, you know, like screaming, but I did have one of those beautiful births where I was able to kind of let everything happen. And it is like a really beautiful thing. So it's, it's the way you come in is the way you go out, you know? Yeah. So I have two thoughts. So my first one is I want to share my favorite quote about birth. And it's it's from this woman named Vicki Noble, who is a tarot card illustrator and also, I guess she's a witch. <laughs> she does a lot of uh, <laughs> spiritual things, if you will. And she's like, you know, one of those original like 1990, like 1970s, like, you know, been around a long time, goddess revival kind of person. And she has this quote that says, let me see if I can remember it. The original shaman is the birthing woman. As she flies between worlds, bringing back the souls of the ancestor, risking her own life in doing so. In truth, we are spirit embodied. And that, to me, is so beautiful because it's true. I've never given birth, but people who give birth step up to that place of death where they feel like they are going to die. And they cross that threshold and come back from it. Ideally, they come back from it, right? Like, mm -hmm. if we're talking about, you know, hundreds of years ago, you know, like some didn't. And, you know, with modern medicine and everything, we've been able to thankfully, I mean, you know, have these better outcomes. But even still, I mean, if you look at the statistics, especially like within the US, when it comes to pregnancy and postpartum, I mean, they're still not where I would love to see them at. There is still risk no matter what. The second you get pregnant, you are signing up for something. I mean, it's considered a medical condition for a reason. There is a risk when you're carrying life inside you. And of course, when you're you're birthing that child, because there are so many different things that can happen. But yeah, I mean, reading that, I mean, especially like, can you imagine like in the 1800s or something, you know, like, I mean, could that not hold completely true, you know? Imagine before that, you yeah. know, when we, yeah. were, like, when we were living in caves still and like, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, wild. really wild. I mean, you, you have to think how many women actually were able to 
give birth and then sustain that life, right? The baby's life. We're worried about feeding our children and we have access to all this different food, right? That we can just chop up easily and give it to them to eat. I mean, what the heck are you, you're like coming out of a cave and like trying to find, I don't know, a bird to chop up for your kid. Like, I mean, it's like, (laughs) you know, yeah. And like, that's, that's the beautiful thing is like, I love, like, that's what, okay. When I think about death, like what makes me not afraid of it is the fact that like my ancestors are going to be waiting for me because they have done this journey. They've already gone through it. And like, kind of what you're saying too, right now, like, Thousands of years ago, there's an ancestors of, you know, an ancestor of ours that lived in a cave and like birthed a child and made it and that child made it and then that child made it and that child all the way to the ancestors that we know, like, you know, our grandparents, great grandparents, mom, dad kind of thing, caregivers. So it's just, I love thinking about that because it shows that birth and death are a cycle. And I'll share this. My one client, I mean, this is like a whole nother topic, but my one client had their father die at home, which you can do. If you're on hospice, you can choose to die at home. Totally legal. It's legal to have a home funeral, all that stuff. That's like a whole nother topic that a lot of death midwives are all about, myself being one of them. You can have home births, you can have a home funeral. But when I when I began working with her, you know, she's the caregiver and she was just like out of her mind because she had been caregiving for, you know, close to a year now. And it was getting towards the end. And she, for whatever reason, she kept talking about her home births. She's like, I forget exactly what she said, but she's like, I birthed all five of my children in this living room. And like a light went on for me. And I was like, okay, what he's doing right now is the same thing. He is giving birth to his death. And all you have to do is create that same space that you would have wanted for you when you were giving birth. And the next time I came over here, like next time I came to her house, the lights were low. There was soft music. There was candles. There was like the the energy completely shifted because she could understand what I was saying by the dying space is a sacred space, just like the birthing space is a sacred space. But it, it all it all clicked together for her. She's like, oh, and like you know, he's he's birthing, he's doing his thing, and he will continue to do it beautifully. All we have to do is just support the space around him, and obviously support her as well. That was my job, mm-hmm. you know. Yeah, yeah. I don't know if you can touch on this really briefly, but and I want to get into talking to kids. So I, you had mentioned, you know, home funeral. As far as alternative methods of you know, dealing with remains, you know, obviously you have cremation, you have the typical burial into the ground. I have heard that there are more ways kind of on the horizon as far as, yeah, like more sustainable methods and more. Yeah. So I would just like to hear your, you know, your thoughts on that, because I, again, like something I'm totally naive. I I have no idea anything about it. So I'm just intrigued now. Okay. So yes, there are Many ways, yes, the traditional ways are burial in a casket with embalming, embalming, which, by the way, has only been popular since the Civil War. It was not a thing up until then. Hmm. So Why is that? that? Because they wanted to ship, you know, let's say somebody died in the South and they wanted to bring Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, yeah, Makes sense. 
Yeah. So like our modern funeral industry has only been around for the past, what was the civil war 200 years ago? Christ, I think. <laughs> so I'm not a historian. So don't I am also not a historian. I mean, I find history interesting, but I can tell you I am also. <laughs> no, I believe <laughs> it's a historian. Like that. My dad uh, was, but anyway. Um, well, now you have me. Now you have me curious. So. Are you going to look it up? <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> okay. April 12th, 1861 to 1865. Okay. So it's like shy of 200 years. Way shy. It's like hundred. Way shy. Years. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Anyway, doesn't matter. But so embalming and uh, like casket burial with all the frills came about from the Civil War. There's a woman named Caitlin Dougherty who does a podcast that I will send to you that talks about the history of the dying space. And it's really, really interesting. But we have traditional burial like that with embalming, embalming, and then we have cremation. And then there's all these other methods happening right now, which I am so happy about. Because just like side note, if you were to peel back all the grass from a cemetery, what you would have is a basically a concrete parking lot. Like, there's so many elements used from the earth that goes into like one, you know, traditional burial that is not sustainable. So we have things like aquamation, which is a form of cremation using water. There's a company out on the West Coast called Recompost, which is literally a compost, not, I don't want to say the word facility, but for lack of a better word, compost facility where you can send your loved one to them and you get compost like soil back. So if you're an avid You can build like a garden. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Absolutely. So interesting. I think it's something like one truckload, like a pickup truck one or two, depending on like the size of the person. There's my favorite, and this is what I will be having for when I die, which is a green burial. So a green burial is no embalming. Because here's the thing is like, you don't need any of that unless you want it, right? Which is totally fine. But you don't need to have embalming. You don't need to have this like super fancy casket. What a green burial is, is it depends on where it is. Well, okay. You get wrapped in a shroud like a cotton or silk shroud something that's biodegradable and you get lowered into the ground you can use like a wooden casket if you want but it has to be usually like some form of wood that will decompose like you know non-treated or there's even some places that only make caskets out of like there's a green burial place in southern Oregon that makes their own caskets from the trees that fall down in their area they're like a forest preserve as well because of that, like they don't bring in any other, no other caskets outside of what, what ones they make on property, basically. And that's the preserve the the forest. So green burial, aquamation, recompost, there's, you can bury at sea, you can get yourself buried, like you can drop your body in the ocean if you'd want that. So there's lots of different ways to dispose of your remains. And basically ask yourself the question, like, You know, so like, for example, my mom doesn't like the idea of her body being in the ground. Like she's like, even though I know I'm not, I wouldn't be in it. I feel like it would just get so cold. So she's going for a traditional cremation. Right. So like ask yourself, like, you know, sit with this question if you wanted and you could ask yourself, what do you feel? What 
you know, is there something that grosses you out about embalming? Then like, don't do it. You know, you know what I'm trying to say? Like, like putting thought to this and figuring out what you would want and talking about it with your loved ones honestly saves them from having to guess. Well, I think that's, yeah. And you'd mentioned this. I think it's really, really important because like you said, anything can happen. And I know that that might seem scary to some people, but I can tell you from working in the emergency room for the last almost 14 years, you never know when your day is coming or is here. And the last thing you want everybody in your life dealing with is trying to figure out what you would want. And you want to be the one that chooses those things. And it's just so much less stress for everyone when you have everything in place, even though it seems like a scary thing, you know? Oh, for sure. And yeah. like, you know, if you're afraid to do it or if you're overwhelmed, hire a death midwife and we can plan, you know, an hour to work on an advanced directive or an hour to like work on your will. There's also like, not everybody would want this, but I don't have much. So I did a free online will service that I was really happy with. Like I felt like, yeah, I got my bases covered. Also, side note, go over your will and your advanced directive maybe around your birthday every year. Just to make sure that you're still aligned with these things. And like anybody's lis- listening and you're feeling nervous about this conversation, just understand like you're safe. And this is a big topic that we don't talk about. And I think you are very brave for even listening to this part, you know, to this, to a death midwife. You don't have to fear death. I promise. And taking the time to do these advanced things beforehand takes that weight off of you so you can live more freely. So I want to jump in a little bit into talking to kids about death, because I know this can be a really, really difficult topic. I, for one, I have small children and let's see, hmm, 2000, oh gosh, 2019. Yeah. 2019. In the fall of 2019. Let's see. I lost my grandmother who was another one of my like primary caretakers. She basically raised me when I was younger. And then my husband's two grandmothers all passed away within like a month period of time. And yeah, it was a lot. And and prior to that, mind you, I hadn't had any death in my life. So it is obviously a lot. But then conceived after like several miscarriages like that next month, which is just crazy. And I totally attribute it to my grandmother. But anyways, but that's a totally different topic for another time. So again, <laughs> yes. Oh, she and you know what's crazy? I'm just going to add this here. And people that have kind of known me for a while already know this. But so she was this amazing person to me. And so when she went, when she died, she had pretty um, significant dementia. So she hadn't really, like, she didn't know my kids, you know, like they would come visit her, but she didn't really know them. She would always remember me, but she didn't know them. But yeah, I conceived. So I actually miscarried. I was miscarrying my second. So this was after my third child. So this is my fourth child. I had miscarried twice, but one of them I was miscarrying at her funeral. And I just remember like, you know, talking to her about it, whatever. And that next month conceived again. And we were actually on our way to Ireland on a family, like a yearly family trip. And 
uh, I was like five weeks and I was so nervous. As you get, I like so nervous. I, I thought for sure, you know, I was going to miscarry again. And while we were in Ireland, every single day we were there, we saw a double rainbow, you know, like they call them double rainbow babies when you conceive after miscarriage. And I saw a double rainbow every single time, every single day we were there. And I don't even know if I've seen a double rainbow like in my life prior to that. And I was just like, this is her telling me, you know, that this is going to be okay, you know, and that this baby is is going to come to fruition. And so I, it was just like, honestly, like the the most like insane thing. And then again, happened when we were on another trip this past year, we were away and there was a lot of things happening. We were really nervous about a couple of things and there was supposed to be this hurricane hitting our house and we really wanted to get home. And there was just all this stuff happening. And I just remember being like, you know, you know, talking to her and saying like, I, you know, I want everything to be okay. I don't know. And that next morning we woke up and we were at the beach and there's this huge double rainbow kind of cascading over the mountain, like where the ocean was. I was just like, oh my gosh, like this is her telling me, you know, anyways, just, just so cool. You know how our ancestors can talk to us in that way, but crap. Now where am I going? Okay. So I found it very difficult to talk to my own kids. I mean, they're, you know, of course, very young. My oldest was six. And then, so it was six, four, and two at the time. So I didn't really know how to handle that situation, how abrupt to kind of be about it. You know, I mean, you can always just say, you know, uh, they're still with us, you know, they're watching over us, things like that. But I'd love to hear from you what you typically tell people, you know, when they have somebody close in their family that's passed away, how you typically talk to parents about the conversation with their children. Sure, absolutely. So two things I want to make note. I know you just mentioned a miscarriage and I have a dear friend named Joanne Zerdi who runs a Instagram account and website called Inviting Abundance. And she offers support through miscarriage and stillbirth, etc. So I just want people to know like you don't like and I'll send that to you as well, but like you're not alone in that. And that's one of my I haven't really dipped my toes into it yet, so to speak, but I feel really passionate about supporting women, excuse me, supporting people who birth through the idea that like, you know, miscarriages happen and it's something that you don't have to go through alone, as do stillbirths and etc. And I just want people to know they're and they're not alone in that. So thank you for sharing that story. That was really beautiful. And you even said it like your grandmother was like sending you all the signs like it's going to be okay. Like how beautiful. Well, and you don't really, you always hear these stories of people being like, oh, you know, so-and-so passed away and then all these things started happening or whenever I see this, it reminds me of them or, you know, and, you know, until it happens to you, you're like kind of foreign to it, you know, and you're not really in tune with it. And then you do lose someone and you're like, oh, I feel like you're, your heart and mind kind of open up to it and kind of invite that in as opposed to, you know, prior to that, you may not have experienced it before or had the opportunity to experience it before. So you weren't as open to it. You know what I mean? Oh, absolutely. And that's the thing about grief is that it cracks you wide open and you are able to, or in my, I'll speak for myself in my experience with grief, 
I'm open to talking to my my dead loved ones because I want to know that they're still with me because that grief is so palpable at that time when it first happens that I feel like, who are we to say that we know everything and that they're not here? You know what I mean? Like, of course they're with us. Anyway, it's like a whole nother story. That's like a whole nother (laughs) spirituality thing. It is, it is, it is. Totally, totally talk about forever. Okay, but you, you direct, you asked me about kids and grief and kids and loss. So I run a class called, and I run it once a month. It's very bluntly called How to Talk to Kids About Death. It is a mix of my own experiences growing up. Death was not foreign to me at all. And it's a mix of my eight years in various public charter and Montessori classrooms. Kids want to be a part of these conversations. Kids know when big things happen because they are attuned to energy. They're empathetic little beings. And using true and brief statements is very important. Kids know when you're lying. They will call you out if they're old enough to do so, but they know when something's not right. So it's part using true and brief statements, but I'm all about, I'm 100% all about using the word death and dying before a death happens. There's ample opportunities to use these words in your vocabulary around children so that when you say, I have sad news, the dog has died or whatever it is. They're not like, well, what's dead, right? Yeah. What does that mean? Are they coming back? Are they coming home? Are they Right. And especially for like our real young ones, like our two and a half, three-year-olds. Okay. So as I'm sure maybe you know or don't know, I'm sure you do. The most absorbent time for kids, like the fastest that they're taking on information and solidifying things in their brain is during the ages of three to six. They have the absorbent mind, Right. They're like a sponge. They're taking in language and they're taking in their social and cultural customs at their house and at school and wherever. They're taking in colors and shapes and all the things. They're learning at such a fast rate. So in my opinion, as an early childhood educator and as a death midwife, talk to them as soon as you can and use things like nature to help you have these conversations about death. For example, if you live in an area where the leaves fall off of the trees, you know, you could mention like, yes, look, the leaves are falling to the ground and they're dying. And when they die on the ground, they actually bring nutrients to the tree again. You know, like there's that word death, dying, and then that discussion of like a cycle where it's like, oh, they die, but they bring nutrition to the tree which is true. Compost is another example. Like all the vegetables wilt and wither and die away. And then it brings us soil for our garden. So my first piece of advice is don't be afraid to use the words dead, death, and dying. Now, if something happens where, you know, a death does occur in the family, a grandparent, God forbid, but a caregiver, a primary caregiver, my first thought is Again, a true and brief statement and giving the child space to ask questions or not ask questions and having resources on hand. 
for example, where I live, we have a place called the Dougie Center, which is a free service to children who are in the process or have experienced a death of a primary caregiver. And there's places like this all over. So if you're hearing this podcast, maybe do a little research to have a place in mind should like should a death occur, like have resources on hand to help yourself and to help the school, let's say, you know, like let the teacher know what's happening and to help your child, help them process grief because it's their first time experiencing this thing in their tiny little brains and bodies. And they're going to look to you for how to handle that sometimes. And that's where we have to know our own feelings about death and dying and what we think happens and how we can, you know, help ourselves because they're going to model what we do. And that's okay. Like, you know, kids need to understand it's okay to see adults cry. It's okay to see an adult upset, especially after death, but have awareness for yourself. And I'm not saying put yourself under a microscope at a time of grief, but I am saying just have awareness around it. So there was a few questions. I'm going to kind of mix this in with some of the questions I received. And there is somebody who had asked about grieving in front of your child. Like, is there like, I feel like I would just grieve as I would in front of my child. But do what they mean, like do they mean cry in front of your child? I think they just mean like however they want to handle that grief, whether that's like I want to scream on the top of a mountain, I want to cry for three days, I want to, you know, instead of like as opposed to on the flip side being that strong mean? pillar that Ow. doesn't show grief. Do you know what I mean? Oh, I'm sorry. Fuck that. No. Tend, <laughs> tend to your grief. Tend to your grief because oh, okay. Because it can become at one point our grief is solid, right? Or excuse me, it's fluid. And if we don't tend to it, it becomes solid and it becomes stuck in our bodies in various places. Tend to your grief and tell your child, "My heart is so sad right now." You might see me cry and it's okay to cry. I am feeling sad because grandmom died. My heart is broken. But I promise you we're going to get through this together. And when you feel sad, you can share that with me or you can ask for space. Here, let's create a space in your room. That's a real cozy corner with a blanket and pillows. And when you're feeling sad, if you think this is, you know, if your child would find that comforting, this is where you can go when you need space to tend to your grief. Use the word grief and explain what that is. Grief is sadness for a long time. And it comes in different ways, right? Our grief can show up as, you know, when I grieve, I wail, I fall to the ground and I weep. My husband, when he grieves, he goes out into the woods and goes for a walk and he wants to be alone. Two very different things. My grief also looks like, you know, a lot of comfort food, which is totally okay. Totally okay. Comfort food is a beautiful thing. You know, so know your grief. Know what it looks like. I also know my grief looks like, you know, zoning out with TV. And I'm aware of that. So I get to ask myself, 
am I okay with zoning out with TV right now? Cause I'm just so sad. Yeah, I'm okay with it. Okay. I'm going to continue to zone out. Right. Like allow yourself mm-hmm. that space. Yeah. I love that. I'm definitely one of those people where I feel like showing our children, our emotions are incredibly important because then they grow up understanding that all emotions are important for one way, you know, for, for whatever reason. And then that, that it's just accepting of their own emotions and then other emotions as they, as they age, you know, and just being able to be empathetic towards that. And also like keep in mind, depending when somebody dies, let's, let's use the example of grandparent just because that's kind of a common experience for children. So in regards to like, let's say a grandparent dying, our grief never goes away. It's not something that ends. It is a cycle. And the cycle might be really intense when it first happens. It might even out a little bit over the years. And that particular day, the death anniversary may feel potent, let's say, or, you know, it's something that weighs on your heart each year. Or it comes up like a wave and takes you down on a random Tuesday, our grief. But also keep in mind with kids, like they're going to process their grief differently. You might tell them, you know, grandparent died and they might just run off and go play. But that doesn't mean they didn't hear it. It doesn't mean they're not processing it. They're going to process grief in a whole different way. If it's the death of a primary caregiver that happened when they are a child, they're going to process their grief again each year as they as they age through each stage development. So their grief is going to change over time. When we're adults and we grieve, it kind of stays the same to an extent, but a child let's say somebody loses their parent when they're seven, when they're 13 and they are going to high school for the first time, that's a whole nother stage of grief because they're experiencing their grief without their parent through like, you know, important time of their life. So when you're kids, the grief can shift and change as they age. I hope that that's clear what I'm trying to say. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. No, definitely. Yes. Okay. This is kind of like a two part a question. So, okay. I lost my mom May of 2021. My son is four and had a really close relationship with her. How can I help keep her memory alive with him? So that'd be the first, yeah, that would be the first part. And then she says, my other son is one and won't have any memories with her. I want both my boys to know how much she loved them and to keep her memory alive in a natural way. Is there anything I should specifically not say when talking to them about death? Oh, when talking to them about death, I thought they're going to say about their mother, her mother. Yeah, no. So it's like, I feel like the, yeah. So the the first is like, how, so how could she keep the memory alive with him or both of her children? And then when she's talking to them about the death of her mother, you know, is there anything she shouldn't say to them or bring up? You can say whatever you want. You can, well, okay. Age appropriately, right? If your if your mother died in a very violent way, don't give them details that will scare them. You know, if she died in a very natural way, you know, maybe you could share a little bit about that. Let the child lead. Let them lead the questions. I'm also going to send you a bunch of books to post as well, like different. Oh titles. yeah, that's great. Yeah, yep, yeah, absolutely. Because here's okay. 
there's a few things I want to say. So let the child lead and follow their lead. If they want to have a conversation about grandmom, then, and if your heart can handle it, right? Because sometimes we have to say, my heart is too sad to talk about it, but can we talk about her later? Or can I tell you my favorite memory from when I was a kid about grandmom, right? Give yourself that grace as well, but let the child lead. And one thing I love to do, and like, this is like a classroom tool, you know, so to speak, is that you leave a work out for a child to find and the child shows interest. And then you as the teacher can be like, oh, let me show you this new work, child. Same thing with books. There's a bunch of books on grief that I will send to Lindsay that, you know, check them out, see what, see which ones you like, and then leave them around the house. If you have like a book nook, like leave it close to the book nook. So the child can like take their time to look through it on their own. And ideally they say, hey, mom or dad or whoever, can you read this to me? Right. That invites that conversation and that conversation will open more doors to other conversations about your sweet, sweet, sweet mother. And be honest with them. Like there is nothing that you shouldn't mention about their grandmother. Because here's the thing, like, you know, obviously keep it age appropriate, but kids are going to come up with their own ideas if they don't get their questions answered. And they have really good imaginations and their imaginations can make really scary things sometimes. So it's our job as the adult, whether it's caregiver or, you know, primary caregiver, parent, aunt, uncle, whomever, cousin, it's our job as the adult to help guide these conversations. So the kids aren't coming up with some crazy idea. For example, there was a child once who was telling me about their, their grandparent who was in the hospital and how he was so afraid to go visit. And I was like, well, why are you, why are you afraid to visit? And he said, well, my uncle is somebody who works on people when they get really hurt. And sometimes there's blood and there's scary stuff and there's machines. And like, he imagined his grandfather in some really scary, like OR, you know, surgery scene. And it was like, no, 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 sweetie. No, he, <laughs> no, you would not be seeing that at all. Your grandfather is most likely like lying in a bed with, you know, yes, a machine called, you know, an IV like hooked up to him. And that looks like a clear bag. And, you know, like they're going to come up with what they think is true and it may not necessarily be true. So that's hence, that's why we go back to the idea of like true and brief statements. No, that makes total sense. Yeah. So they don't have to make up in their minds, like what, you know, what's actually happening. Yeah, totally. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, sorry. One more point. Media. Be very aware of what they're consuming. Like not only like the TV that they watch, but if they're, if you have the news on and they're hearing about all these COVID deaths that happened and you think they're not paying attention they are. So like, you know, like really be aware of that. If you're having a conversation with your partner about how sad you feel about the COVID deaths or whatever it is, maybe don't have that in front of your kids if you haven't talked to them about it already. Yeah, that can be really hard because, well, (laughs) that word is everywhere, you know, and then they hear their friend at school has it and then they're, you know, automatically you know, shooting over to this thought of, you know, death and my friend. And yeah, it can be, it can be really hard. And again, age appropriate. Like I can talk to my eight year old about these things, you know, and she can 
you know, for the most part, I think understand a lot of what I want to say to her, but you know, my four-year-old could never. And, you know, that would be really super scary. You know, they Oh yeah, but like, you know, like the okay, you know, almost a million people have died, you know, like just like the, you know, the statistics and yeah, you know, because she kind of understands all of that now and you know, well, it's typically, you know, who is, who is, you know, more at risk and all of those things and why we have to do all the things we have to do to keep people safe. And it's, it's, it's easier for, you know, the eight-year-old and to conceptualize than it is for, you know, the younger. But again, like if you talk to, I, I think kids have handled COVID beautifully. The adults have really failed completely, right? It's like the kids are walking around. They're like, oh, okay, you want me to wear a mask to protect grandma? Sure, no problem. And then you have adults that are like, F this mask. I'm not protecting grandma. It's like, what on earth? Do you know what I mean? Like, is it not like, oh my gosh. Anyways, I could go on a huge tangent about that, but it's like <laughs> kids know how to handle this situation better than we do. <laughs> So kids can handle these conversations, handle these situations. We have to just open the door for them and to, to let them speak. I mean, you know, oftentimes they're the silent grievers and like, how do we give them that space to be like, you know, what's going on in your mind? Like, how are you feeling? That's like one of the best things you could ask a child at any point, you know, like, how are you, how are you feeling? Get down on their level, like sit on the floor when you ask them. So you're eye to eye. Connect, you know, I mean, I'm sure people do that. Well, no, I mean, you're, you're absolutely right. I was talking with, I think it was one of, it was a podcast guest months and months ago. And I was talking to her because I have one child who's very, very independent and she's just like very, she's a challenger, you know, and that's just, I think it'll be wonderful for her. And if we can put it in a way that's like really useful for her. But anyways, it's just, it can be very hard. So very, very hard. So she will be, you know, it's always at the very height of whatever's happening. There could be 5,000 things happening. The dog just had diarrhea on the rug. This is like an example of tonight. Diarrhea on the rug. Dinner is half cooking. It's going to get burnt. Baby's crying, just fell off something. Four-year-old is doing something crazy. And then, you know, whatever, crazy house. And then she is like, flipping out, screaming. And so the advice from this person, and I can't remember who it was, who I was talking to, but she was like, more than anything, your immediate reaction is going to be like, not right now, you know, like screaming from across the room because you have thousand things going on. She's like, but if you can try, oh, this was my therapist that says this. So she's like, if you can just try, that's who it was. If you can just try to go over to her Get on her level. Like if she's in a chair, squat down, eye level with her and just say, I'm listening. Is there something I can help you with right now? And that's it. And she's like, if you can just make that really small change instead of like, oh my gosh, I can, I, there's no way I can handle another thing happening in the house right now. Like I'm just going to like yell from across the room, like can't do this right now. If you can just take 30 seconds, walk over down to their level, eye level, make eye contact and just say, I'm here, I'm listening. Is there something I can help you with right now? And they might keep kicking, screaming, yelling, what have you. But you can just say, okay, I love you. I'm here if you need me. And it can be as simple as that. Like then you can get up and continue on with the next you know, crisis. But the very small act of just like getting down to their level and making that eye contact can be so huge. And like over time, 
you know, it helps them to know you're there, you're making contact, you're, you're taking that couple of seconds to say, I hear you, I acknowledge you, I see you. And it can be really hard in the moment, but it's oh, so important. Yeah. I was just going to say, take a big breath as you're walking over. Like, yeah, you know, like, oh, like, yeah. sigh it out. I mean, that's, it's so, one of the reasons I love the Montessori classroom so much is because you just described like, many experiences with kids that I had in the classroom, like, and it's different because I'm not a parent and, you know, but yes, that feeling of like, as the adult, like making a conscious decision to be like, I'm going to be an adult in this moment. And I'm going to take a breath and like, okay, like, how can I help you child? Cause they're doing their best. That's the best that she could, you know, they could do in mm-hmm. that moment. Yeah. Yeah. And, and and have yeah. grace for ourselves when we aren't our, we are not at our best. Mm-hmm. Kids don't need perfect parents. They need real parents, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh yeah. I mean, I like whenever I yell or whenever there's something that I at the end of the day I'm like, "Oh gosh." Like just going in and apologizing is like one of the biggest things you can do. Oh yeah. 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 So I yeah, I Huge advocate for that. Yeah. All right. I just want to squeeze through. Let me see if there's anything else I wanted to add before. Is there anything that you can think of that you want to mention? Kind of like pulling everything together that we've talked about so far. What do you think? Oh my God. We've been like all over the map. We've been all over the map. I know. I like totally was like, we're going to talk about kids and death. And then we were like, here, there, wherever, witches, ancestors, birth. Rainbows, Ireland. I mean, I don't know. Let's see. Pull it all together. Okay. I'm going to take a breath and put my hand on my heart and see what comes through. So taking the time to talk with your children about death and dying can feel scary, but it's something that we're all going to experience. And it's something that we all have experienced in our lives up until this point maybe. What we need to remember is that teaching them when they're young, how to not be afraid of these things, afraid of death, is going to just help the next generation. And it's like a domino. It's going to keep helping and helping more and helping. When we can step outside of our fear of the unknown, we are able to bring ourselves freedom and connection. Because that's all death is, is fear of the unknown. We're afraid of it because we don't know what happens. But the thing that you can remember, and that is true throughout time, is that the love remains. The love you have between you and anyone that you know that has died, be it a pet or a parent or a grandparent or a sibling, the love remains between you. I hope that tied it all together. No, that was <laughs> I well cuz you know, I'm giving you the space you need. I <laughs> That was beautiful. No, there was I really liked the quote where you were saying that oh my gosh, it was the middle part and I thought to myself, oh, that's going to be the quote for the episode. <laughs> it just kind of like puts it all together. Yeah, no, I thought that was beautiful. Okay, so two 
random questions for you that I ask all the interviewees. So the first one is, if you could give a piece of advice, now I know that you're not a mom, but you have worked with children. So what would your piece of advice be for moms? It doesn't have to be about the topic that we talked about today. It could be about anything. What would your advice be? It's funny. I've I've said to so many kids, like, I'm a mom between the hours of eight and four, you know. (laughs) They're like, ha ha, Miss Angela. You're our mom when we're at school. I'm like, you know it for sure. What would be my advice to moms? Mm. Be gentle with yourselves. Be gentle with yourselves. Give yourself self-compassion as much as possible. Be gentle. I like it. I mean, so many times we're so harsh on every, you know, we go to bed at the end of the day and we're like, I did this wrong. I did this. I could have handled this better. I could have done this. Why didn't I do this? And all the things that we're handling on a daily basis on top of, of course, our own like career or, you know, other things going on in our lives, you know, it's, it's definitely tough. So, okay. Second one is if you could make probably the most lighthearted question of the night, if you could make, (laughs) if you could make one dinner for you, and your husband, what would it be that would be something quick and easy that you both really love? Oh, we're really, I feel like I, I like want to ask him. He's like right here, but I won't. I won't <laughs> <laughs> we're really big fans of Trader Joe's. Oh, yeah. And I feel like Trader Joe's has a lot of good like pre-made salad stuff, like salad bags. So like maybe... If it's quick and easy night, maybe like a pre-made Trader Joe's salad bag of something, like some really good salad. And then I feel like I freeze everything. Like I'm one of those people who I'm like, oh, you know, there's two sausages left. Let's freeze it and like use it at another time. And I always make sure I have like, okay, this would be the meal. So I always feel like I have like some sort of like dough or like, you know, puff pastry like in the freezer too. So I would do the salad bag from Trader Joe's with, I love sausage, sausages uh, wrapped in puff pastry. That's it. Wait, is that just kind of like, you know, the little the little hot dog appetizers? <laughs> <laughs> right? What the hell are they called? Oh, my gosh. Maybe a blanket. Yes. I guess. Okay. I guess. Maybe this is maybe this is like another podcast at some point, but I <laughs> I love pastries. So I over the past two years I have become an intuitive eater slash anti dieter. So I've rejected diet culture completely. And it's so funny you mentioned pu- the pigs in a blanket because those were like the one thing that I like loved deeply as a child but could like never have for whatever whatever reasons so yes it makes complete sense to me that my like go-to meal is like a adult version of a pig in a blanket (laughs) (laughs) oh my gosh it's too good it's too good it's too good (laughs) but you just gave me an idea because we're about to get a huge snowstorm and i have a bunch of puff pastry in my freezer and i've got sausage so there you have it i mean my kids will love it they freaking love it's yeah, like it. it's so yeah. good. It's all about I feel like what I'm what I'm discovering about food for myself right now is like rediscovering like discovering the food that I loved as a child and like letting myself like indulge and like have some decadence in that way. Cuz here's the other thing like moms/parents slash parents, 
don't forget to like play with your own inner child. Like let them lead sometimes because really cool things happen. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. Well, side note. For sure. <laughs> and it's really good for you to yes. like engage into that imaginative space with your kids. Yes. Yeah. Oh yeah. my God. Absolutely. Yeah. With the kids. That's my favorite space. That's why I, I still love working with children and I like have a, I have a nanny gig a few times a week because being with them is just, it reminds me to play and reminds me to like, that we're here for such a short time, just be present and be in love, be in love with like this moment that we have together. All right. Well, that, I mean, what better way to end it? Mm. Right? <laughs> Thank you, Lindsay. So many <laughs> blessings. This was wonderful. Oh, you too. Thank you so much for your time, Angela. Yes. And to everybody who listened, thank you. I love you. I'm here to support you and blessed be. Yes. Awesome. Thank you so much, Ange. Thank you so much for hanging out with us today. All resources mentioned in this episode can be found in the show notes on lindsayandco.com. To continue these important conversations, head over to Motherhood Meets Medicine on Instagram. Let me know what you learned from this episode and who you would love to hear from next. I always love getting feedback from you. If you're finding value in this podcast, please rate, review, subscribe, and share with a friend. This will help us to reach even more women from around the world. I'll catch you next week. Until then, don't forget to find some time to unplug, unwind, and have a little fun. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the roaring 20s. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.